I have a friend with me this morning. Well, you're my friends. But I have a particular friend this morning. Um, if you don't know, uh, my son Isaiah is kind of an amateur horticulturalist. He really enjoys plants. And this is what we thought was a Christmas cactus. Christmas cacti typically bloom right around Christmas, sometime in December. However, this cactus just bloomed at the end of October and continues to bloom in the beginning of November. So I looked it up online, and if it blooms around this time, then it's actually a Thanksgiving cactus <laughs> rather than a Christmas cactus. But it surprised us. This is the first time that it's bloomed. So all of a sudden, these yellow orangish blooms popped out of this thing all over the place they'll last for a little while um, but not a very long time so we've appreciated it um, he especially has because it's in his room but this thing here though beautiful the blooms were expected at some point because we knew, well, before we thought it was a Christmas cactus, we knew it was a cactus that bloomed, that it had distinct material inside of it that would cause it to bloom beautifully. That's how God created it. And as we found out, it bloomed in late October, early November, no less. How about you and I? Do we have the material in us to bloom beautifully? The Bible says no. The Bible says that all of us have the material inside of us that is original and depraved. We are all under sin. That's the material that's inside of us. Romans 3.10, Paul quotes from Psalm 14 and says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about the currency of the kingdom of heaven being righteousness. Righteousness meaning right standing, peace with God, nothing between you and him. If you have no righteousness, no right standing with God, then there's no God, no heaven for you. For none of us is naturally righteous. None of us naturally bloom righteousness. We, we have no righteous wealth in us that would gain us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Thus, heaven is not naturally for us. I hope that you see the problem there. The predicament. 
See, when the seed of sin germinates in us, it does not produce beautiful blooms. It produces thorns, briars, and thistles. This is the curse at work within humanity and individual humans. And the thing is, we would expect nothing less because we know, just by common sense seeing in nature, certain seed produces certain blooms or certain fruit. Right now, on my own, I'm reading Paul David Tripp's Dangerous Calling. And Tripp takes his readers to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13, the few verses that follow what Lovey read for us earlier. Here's what Isaiah the prophet writes. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard sermons on that or just people saying, hey, you know what? The word of the Lord never returns void, which in a sense is true. I won't say in a sense. It is true. But I would say this. Sometimes that's just thrown out as a Christian cliche. Rather than actually looking at the text and understanding what is God's purpose for his word. Listen to what Tripp says. Remember, the overarching metaphor is the falling of rain and snow. Strangely, this passage says that when this rain falls down, the thorn bush will become a cypress and the briar will become a myrtle. Now think with me. If you have a little thorn bush in your backyard and it's nourished by the snow and rain, what do you expect to get? The obvious answer is a bigger thorn bush. If the rain and snow water that briar, if the rain and snow water that briar in your yard, you know the result will be a bigger briar. But not so with the word of God. When this rain falls on the thorn bush, it actually becomes something organically different. The picture here is of fundamental, specific, and personal transformation. When the word of God, faithfully taught by the people of God and empowered by the spirit of God, falls down, people become different. Lusting people become pure. Fearful people become courageous. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. And idolaters come to joyfully worship the one true God. 
The ultimate purpose of the word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. We are naturally unrighteous. But we need something outside of us that can transform us. We need for the word to transform us. And let me just say this. If you're in Christ, it does. We've been in Matthew 5 so far where we've seen Jesus is speaking to his disciples with the crowd listening in. He's preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had already called his disciples blessed generally, though their lives would appear to be cursed. And in a sense, they had the blooms on the inside, even though their lives seemed to be pretty thorny on the out. He had called his disciples blessed specifically for being persecuted, reviled, and defamed for his sake, for his name, for following Jesus. And last week, Jesus identifies his disciples as the salt of the earth, a tasty, preserving agent in the world, and emphasizes the importance of their purity. That they would not be mixed with other stuff. Because that's how salt loses its tastiness. Its value as a preserving agent. He also calls them the light of the world. Saying that together, his disciples are a city on a hill for those lost in darkness to see Jesus, the light of the world, shining out through them. Their good works would shine brightly and others would give glory to God because of them. Note the transformation that Jesus is anticipating from these fishermen. At this point, it seems like his only disciples were Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It may have just been the four of those dudes at this point. We don't know for sure. But we do know that the other disciples didn't have much more to commend themselves either. Jesus is saying there's going to be a transformation that he anticipates and is accomplishing. The blooms that he is creating from his word preached to them. And that's how he's planting. What is this transformation? My disciples are outstandingly righteous. Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning through your word. By the work of your spirit who is exalting Jesus. That we would be transformed this morning. For those who have not yet turned and believed, they have not yet been born again, would you do the miraculous work of bringing rebirth this morning in this very place? 
for those who are in awe of your grace that you have given us new life, oh, would you continue to sanctify us? Continue to make us more like Jesus. Cause blooms to sprout, we ask. Amen. So Matthew 5, 17 through 20 has three parts. Verses 17 through 18 are about correctly understanding Jesus and his ministry. Let's read. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is, is accomplished. Again, here Jesus is wanting them to correctly understand him and his ministry. He is not instituting a new religious system. That seems to have been their assumption. Because he says right from the start, do not think that I'm going to abolish the law or the prophets. This is not an out with the old, in with the new, necessarily. Instead, he's saying, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament, which the law and the prophets would be a way to just describe the entirety of the Old Testament. He says, I have not come to abolish them, to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. Did you catch that? He didn't say the Old Testament will be fulfilled. He said, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. You can't miss that shift. For a group of men and a crowd who through their entire understanding of religious life had been beholden to a law code, this subtle shift was revolutionary. These disciples were not just following a new rabbi with new opinions about the old law. Jesus was saying, the old law, I fulfill. I do. All of the Old Testament is about me. That's either wondrous or blasphemous. Furthermore, he's saying, not only is it about me, but this law, which, if we're really honest, you know you can't keep. I have kept it. I have fulfilled it. Perfectly. Every dot, tittle, iota, the least bit of it, I fulfill it all. To which then he says, for truly I say to you, wait. He just said, now this, truly, you want to hear truth? Listen to me. 
Truly, I say to you, beginning a pattern that will then carry into the coming sections of this sermon, where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's not abolishing what has been said, but he's saying, you've heard it said, and now I say to you. He's saying, listen, all authority belongs to me. The reason that not the very least part of the law or the prophets could be abolished by me is because I wrote them. The Old Testament, the inspired word of God, are the words of Jesus. So he's not about to go and erase what he has said. Furthermore, he makes this astounding claim that None of them will pass away until earth and heaven pass away. He's claiming something about the eternal authority of the entire scriptures and also his own eternal authority and understanding and knowledge. See, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God has arrived in me. I have brought the kingdom, but don't throw away the law of the king. Don't throw away any scripture and its moral imperatives. Why? Because correctly understanding Jesus will mean correctly teaching Jesus. Next verse, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't think I finished my thought a couple of minutes ago. This would be so revolutionary for these people who had become code followers, who were born law code followers. And now Jesus is saying, now you follow me. It goes from having to navigate bureaucracy to knowing the aldermen. It goes from having to do all of the right things to just being free because you're the one who has done, you're following the one who has done all of the work, who will never lead you astray. So here in 19, don't relax these commandments or teach others to, because all of this is inspired by me. I would not have you erase anything that was talking about me, that was pointing to me, that your forefathers misunderstood as being a code of law to be followed to achieve righteousness, when the entire time it was all about faith faith in the one who had given them the law. Faith in the heart of God whose ways were higher than their ways. Trusting him wholly, venturing upon his goodness even to sinners like them. So he's saying, when you understand me correctly, if you're a teacher, disciples, you're not going to just let stuff go. 
You're not going to relax the law. You're going you're gonna to take things seriously when I say them. So instead, do them. And teach others to do them. This is how you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God's commandments themselves are righteous. And that's the currency of the kingdom. So if you're correctly understanding Jesus, you will correctly teach Jesus, which means that you are then understanding how to correctly follow Jesus. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How is that about following Jesus? Because Jesus was taking people with him to be with him for eternity. And without righteousness, they would not be following him to where he was taking them. Jesus makes this shocking statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, in order to be my disciples, you must be outstandingly righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven. More so than the scribes and the Pharisees, to which they would have shuddered, that being the disciples, that being the crowds. If he is who he says he is, and he is, in effect, speaking a new word from God, now he's saying the very people that we have been following, the very people we see as righteous, we have to exceed their righteousness? Jesus, I have nothing to offer in this way. I don't study the scriptures like them for a living. I don't have the financial means to do what they do to follow the law. I don't have the religious upbringing. I, I don't know the Old Testament like they do. I, I want to be righteous. But if you're telling me I have to be more righteous than them, that leaves me only in despair. You're telling me to do more? I don't even know what that would mean. For now, this is where Jesus leaves them. This is where Jesus leaves them in considering his teaching on righteousness and the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he's about to start teaching those you've heard it said, but I said, but I say, realities that touch on really hard topics that all of us face. And what he says is that those things reveal our unrighteousness. With the potential end game of the judgment of hell. 
that's where Jesus is going. In fact, this chapter ends with, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe that's where you feel Jesus has left you this morning. I'm a wreck, a mess. I feel no presence of Christ in me. I'm tempted. I fail. I want to know God, but why have I never really felt like I actually do? And now Jesus, who is supposed to embrace me in his arms, as we sang earlier, is saying unequivocally, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Maybe you're saying, I'm so tired already. If Pastor Andy's application this morning is be in church more, read the Bible more, pray more. Number one, I've tried those things. And number two, they feel lifeless and dead. I barely made it here this morning. Do more? Be more perfect? Is that the burden that you carry this morning? God demands perfection, but nobody's perfect. Especially not me. Just as I said earlier, I hope you see the problem. I hope you see the problem. The predicament. Because if you're seeing it, the Lord might be working blessing you. You're poor in spirit. You're hungering and you're thirsting for righteousness. You so want the kingdom of heaven. I hope so. That's where Jesus leaves his disciples for now. But it's not where he's left us. You can keep your finger in Matthew 5 if you want and turn over to Romans chapter 3. It's going to go up on the screen too. We actually studied this. Isaiah led us in studying this on Wednesday night for Life Together. And the, the parallels between what Paul says and what we're reading about Jesus saying this morning are striking. Lots of talk of righteousness. You'll hear about the law and the prophets. And a surprising conclusion. 
Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This means that God showed, manifested, revealed his own righteousness apart from the law. A Jew would hear this as, what? Apart from the law? Righteousness, not through the law? But here, most of us are Gentiles in the room. Gentile, hear this. You know you have your own law too. You know you have your own spiritual standards that you expect to maintain your own righteousness. This is what we do. We either try to follow those standards or we abolish them and live any way that we want. Either way, God has manifested, revealed his righteousness. We're no longer talking about our righteousness. His righteousness apart from the law. Old Testament standards or inside of me standards. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what Jesus has just said. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The good news is coming. God in his mercy has a gift for sinners. That gift is his righteousness. His righteousness for people who are poor in righteousness. God has righteousness for us. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Imagine a lamb being led to the altar, about to bleed out for the sake of sinners. This is the image that Paul is painting here. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means that blood was offered for others. It was put forth to satisfy the wrath of God for sinners, towards sinners. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. All of the Old Testament sins specifically, but I'll make this a little bit more personal. All of our sins leading up to the day when we're reborn. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. How could God be a, how could he be just and justifier? It's because God is the judge. And to simply say, eh, you can go ahead, would have meant that he was not a just judge. Your sin's not all that big of a deal. I'm God after all, right? I could just do stuff like that. That would make God unjust. It would, it would leave him open to the accusation of being a sinner himself because he would be unjust. But there's some way that in, in this method of revealing his righteousness that God could be just and the justifier. By the justifier, it means the righteouser, to make others righteous. To say, yes, they are sinners, but there's something new coming. The just and the justifier of the one, there's a, a distinction there, who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, made righteous, by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What did Jesus just say about the law? That he fulfills the law. What is Paul just saying about him and his teaching and the people that are believing on Christ? We uphold the law. That sounds blasphemous. That sounds way out in left field, Paul. No. Because the blood of Jesus does exactly that. The blood of Jesus takes sinners and rains down on seeds of sin and transforms. Says, there's no longer any sin for you to pay for. No longer any punishment for you to endure. If your faith is in me, I took all the punishment, all the shame, all the sins that I patiently, patiently waited on, all of those are forgiven because Jesus is the righteous one. His fulfilling of the law allowed him to be the righteous, perfect sacrifice. Every dot, tittle, and iota of the law was fulfilled in him. So we don't need to look back to the Old Testament and say, well, which one should I start following now, Pastor Andy? No, Jesus did it all. But some of you, some of us, and our flesh will say, sweet, that means if he did it all, I don't need to do any of it. Uh, that's a cactus without any blooms. That's a cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer and Pastor Jake talked about last week. 
that is a understanding that I'm cool. I got my get into heaven free card. Oh, I'm going to live free now. Notice that Paul said, this is the law of faith. True faith. True faith looks like true faith. True faith in Jesus is a faith that follows Jesus, does not accept Jesus, and then abandons Jesus. You might say, nobody's perfect. And you'd be right. But if there's anything that you walk away from today, remember this, somebody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, somebody's perfect. And he offers his perfection, his righteousness to us. This is the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Imputed means accounted. That means there's nothing that we brought to the bargaining table in our desire to have peace with God other than our own guilt. But Jesus steps in as the mediator and says, um, she can have my righteousness. He can have my righteousness. Uh, the word imputed also has a shade of meaning that has to do with accusation. So play that out a little bit. Jesus was accused for our sin. And we're accused of what? His righteousness. The only accusation, brother and sister in Christ, that is over your head right now is God saying, I'm accusing you of righteousness. You've got my son's record. I love you. He died for you. I chose you before the foundations of the world. You're responding to the work of my spirit in your life. And, you're, and you want to follow him? Like this is all blooms. It's all blooms. I'm going to accuse you of something. I'm going to accuse you of being righteous. Because Jesus says my disciples are outstandingly righteous because I give them my outstanding righteousness. Paul says in Christ, we uphold, we fulfill the law ourselves, not by our own works, but because we are united to Christ. That's how we uphold the law, in Jesus. We are righteous, and thus we are transformed to live righteously. So do not, if you go back to Matthew 5, as Jesus says, do not relax any of these Instead, venture wholly on Jesus and say, I can't keep every dot and tittle and iota, but you do. And now you live inside of me and I'm united to you? So, so Jesus says, teach these. And here's a little turn. And with this I finish. Teach these. Jesus is not just talking about these in terms of what his disciples would understand as the Old Testament law. He's pointing them forward. Teach these. What he's about to say about the, you've heard it said, but I say. 
teach these, as he says in Matthew 28 to his disciples, teach the new disciples all that I have commanded. See, good works are the fruit, the blooms of outstanding righteousness imputed, implanted in us. And the spiritual fruit shows in real life situations that would normally reveal our unrighteousness and still sometimes do. But the blooms are still there. It's those real life situations where Jesus' presence in us is revealed in an outstanding way to a watching world. So when we finished last week's section, it says that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Sometimes we trip up on that. We think, what great things for God am I going to do? Jesus is saying, the great thing for God is what I already did for you. Now follow me, and I'm going to teach you what it looks like to walk in my ways. When it comes to being angry, How do you handle anger when you're angry at someone else in the church? Parents, how do you handle anger when you're angry at your kids? Kids, when you're angry at your parents. Bosses, when you're angry with your workers. Employees, when you're angry with your bosses. Students, when you're ticked off at your teacher. Teachers, when you can't stand your students. Members, when you can't stand your pastors. I won't say the other side of that. Here's the thing, though. This is what Jesus is saying. If my righteousness is in you, your life's going to change. That's why we're taking the Sermon on the Mount slowly. Because next week, David is going to preach on anger. Only anger. Because we need to see how does the righteousness of God imputed inside a believer show out when all of us are angry people? How does it show out in lust? How does it show out in marriage and divorce? How does it show out in oaths, being people of integrity, keeping our words? How does it show out in retaliation against our enemies? How in the world could we say, could Jesus say, love your enemies? How does it look when it comes to giving to the needy and praying and fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, not being anxious? Really? What I want you to see here is that the righteousness of Christ imputed in his disciples invites them to say, come follow me. I want to teach you. I want to transform you. And you may say, but I don't keep those things perfectly. Of course you don't. But there's a difference between perfect obedience and blooming obedience. Not everything here has a bloom. But when the Spirit of Christ works in a person, there will be blooms. And when there's not, we confess those blooms and we ask for more grace. We ask for more help. We ask, would you teach me from your word? Transform me more and more, Lord Jesus, to be like you. This is what discipleship is about. You might remember that we just...
prayed Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Just 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's imputed righteousness. Christ living in sinners. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're seeing thorns in your life, would you pray, ask that God would turn thorns into blooms? That by the work of his spirit and the teaching of Christ in his word, we would be changed people in the real stuff of life. Nobody's perfect, but somebody is. And that somebody is perfecting his people. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we are thankful for your perfection. We're thankful for the joy and the freedom that it truly gives. Not to live our lives for our own glory or in our own ways, our own standards and laws, but to follow the holy, righteous one himself who gave himself for us. And so we do ask yet again, would you continue to produce blooms in us? Would we see your righteousness outstandingly coming out? And we would pray that, Lord, for your glory and also for the people around us, that they would wonder, how does she handle her anger that way? Why is he doing this? Because, God, you're at work in us. And, Lord, if there, are here, if there are those here who are not yet righteous because they have not received by faith that gift that you were offering to them, would they simply receive it today? To receive righteousness, to receive perfection through faith in you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name.